Gotta get myself together and get down to the gym and start working out. Hey, then maybe we can go down to the gym together. Sure, then I'll go down there with you. Well, look, I want to. I was in bad shape the last time. I really want, but I can do it. I can get back into shape. I mean, you should have seen the things we had—the new car and the house and everything. I am going to be bad news this time around. Bad news. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. Our film is Fat City, 1972 film directed by John Huston, starring Stacey Keach, very young Jeff Bridges, Susan Terrell. It's a fascinating film. The book also I can't recommend highly enough by Leonard Gardner, written a few years before in 1969. He also wrote the screenplay. It's a dark film about the underbelly of boxing, boxing at the fringes, which is most of boxing, where if you are not rich in this game, you need a second or a third job just to survive. And this film is set in Stockton, California, has a real vibe, I think, of John Steinbeck, feels a little bit like Cannery Row without the kind of sunshine of Steinbeck shining down upon the characters. These are a lot of the people you meet in boxing gyms that I've met. And Houston, yeah, just, just is able to illuminate this lives that are broken, damaged goods, trying to find solace in each other, looking for hope in hopeless circumstances. It's dark, but it's beautiful, and Stephen Benedict and I try to look at why so many people regard this book and this film as one of the best depictions of the ethos of boxing that exists. So I hope you enjoy Fat City. In the boxing community is a lot of people's favorite boxing film ever made. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Um, I think it may be a little bit like watching a, a legal drama or a military movie or, you know, um, I don't know, something else, M mechanics, you know, car racing. They, go, they got it right. This is emotionally, realistically what it really is about because as we were saying before i think in relation to some movies the vast majority of us have never been in a gym oh no, sorry, never been in a ring <laughs> yeah i hope yeah. we've never been in a gym we've been never been in the ring and so we really don't know what it's like and so um to hear boxers and athletes saying this is the real deal um i watched it again on the weekend and um i think i said this to you before when i was a young man i i watched i was far too young to get it I didn't even identify with Ernie, uh, Jeff Bridges' character, uh, which I thought would have been possible because of the age. But now as I'm considerably older, the movie just hits so hard, so hard, you know? And it, it, it's, it's a beautiful film because it's so honest, you know? Yeah, and I, I love, I mean, the background of this film also is that John Huston is looking for his own comeback which yeah. is a, a theme we're going to see with these boxing films, that actors, directors see a great metaphor in the story of a boxer that's probably not there dramatically with a Stallone trying to make it as a writer-director um, yeah. or John Houston trying to reclaim 
his status. Um, but this was supposed to have Marlon Brando in the starring role. Which amazed me. I mean, I can understand because, as you said, John Huston was looking for, you know, he had started so well as a writer in the 30s. And um, then he becomes a writer-director in the 40s. He did very well in the 50s and the 60s. His films really didn't hit. And uh, when he made a movie with Brando in 1967 called Reflections of a Golden Eye, and that didn't do well. So I can understand to a point the idea of approaching Brando to play the role of Tully, the older actor. But then, you know, and I know a lot of it is to do with the rewriting and when you when you get an actor, you will rewrite the role to, to suit the actor and that will in turn affect the plot. But, you know, Brando was 47 in 1972 and the role as written by uh, Leonard Gardner in the novel um, he's, he's late 20s barely 30 you know and I think that uh, that would have that would have unbalanced the story enormously not only in terms of the plot but Brando to get Brando in the movie then you have got to you've got to load it on the opposite side with an equally compelling young actor to come through and I think you know, just going off topic a little bit, that's one of the reasons why The Godfather works so well is because once they secured Brando, they knew they had to get real heavy hitters for the younger roles. And, you know, getting getting it absolutely right is such an important central part of why The Godfather is a success because James Caan and Robert Duvall and Diane Keaton and Talia Shire and Al Pacino, all the way down the line, Morgana King playing the mother, You've really got everybody's got to be a heavyweight, although they may not be stars. They've got to be really, really deliverable. And I'm thinking if Brando was put in there, the movie would have been dead before it started. I really, I really do, because I can't imagine how an audience would have tolerated Brando playing a guy who is looking for redemption but doesn't get it. I just, you know, I just don't, I just don't think so. Do you think it would have worked? Oh, no, I don't think, I think Brando is too, at that point, he's just too loaded a character, both what he's delivered on screen and his reputation at that point. I mean, 1972 is last tango. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, you're right. But at the same time, I mean, he does deliver two fantastic back-to-back performances. But they're, they, neither of those performances are what Fat City needed. You know, they're big. They're, they're big acting. Even though, you know, he plays more, um, um, Don Corleone, he plays him very shuffly and very, very old. I thought Stacey Keach was beautifully cast, and I think his performance is absolutely beautifully pitched. Um, and, you know, Houston was, he said that so much of his films relied on good casting. Yeah. And when his when his movies worked, they were beautifully cast, and when they didn't, they were badly cast. You know, and um, Houston then said that it wasn't his style or preference as a director to step in and give direction. You know, to sort of to browbeat or traumatize the actor into giving what he thought was right for the right for the part. So, um, and I also thought that. Um, uh, not only Jeff Bridges was beautifully cast, but I thought Candy Clark as his girlfriend mm. uh, was br- brilliantly positioned as well. I mean, uh, as Faye, I mean, you know, Candy Clark was an actress that we didn't, I don't think we ever saw enough of. I mean, she was wonderful in American Graffiti. Um, she plays the girl who goes out on the date with um, with 
um, Charles Martin Smith, um, who was called, um, really, I can't remember what, what the, the, the nickname that he has, but he's the guy who, who rides the, the Vespa and he's got these big glasses and he's very geeky. And uh, Candy Clark's character, she's, she was such a fantastic light comedian. And then a couple of years later, she turns up in um, the David Bowie movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and she was wonderful in that as well. And I don't know what happened um, that she, she wasn't able to, or her career didn't lift off the way I think it deserves to. But she was brilliantly cast as this very, very young girl who loses her virginity to to um, Jeff Bridges' character Ernie, and she wants to get married, and because she this she thinks this is it, and then at the opposite end of the scale, uh, Susan Terrell playing Oma, the 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 alcoholic uh, who we first see in the bar, she was absolutely superb, and yeah, all the performances were perfectly pitched, and um, although the the characters really didn't emotionally connect with each other the way you would want them to. I thought the, the performances work beautifully as a quartet. You know, yeah. it's just, it's one of the best best cast pictures, certainly of the 70s. And I mean, I'm talking about movies like The Godfather, Dog Day Afternoon, and uh, The Deer Hunter, which are, are amongst the best cast Hollywood pictures, I think, ever. You know, the ensemble of those movies are really, it's, it's, it's lightning in a bottle. Yeah, I felt, I, I mean, I was thinking, I read the book of this probably 20 years ago right. when I was still sort of involved in boxing. And what it reminded me of right away was one of the people who was in my gym was a trainer who was kind of like Jeff Bridges' character, Ernie Munger, okay. who as a young guy in San Diego, he'd left British Columbia to go to San Diego as a teenager. And in those days, if you fought an exciting fight, you really made most of your money by people throwing money into the ring as wow. a kind of gratuity <laughs> for the excitement. And it's like if, yeah, right. Very true. And, and if somebody down the road in a show didn't show up, you might be asked to come fight again. And right. so there was no regulation yeah. or real governing bodies providing much oversight for the safety of these guys. And he had his shot at 19 or 20 years old. He got to be, his name was Ronnie Wilson, the number one light heavyweight in the world and kind of about the same size and sort of a pretty boy like Jeff Bridges. And I think was drunk before he fought. So he squandered his opportunity and he was still fighting at the age of 50 and ended up completely homeless, drug addicted, HIV. Um, so he, he came to mind a lot watching this film. Yeah. And with the backdrop of sort of, I saw five easy pieces, the last detail, a little bit of Rocky, cool hand Luke, and especially the ethos of John Steinbeck's of Mice and Men, because I, I think Stacy Keacher Bridges are actually from Salinas, in the story. Okay, okay. And so there was a sense of those um, Cannery Row hobos, yeah. and you care about them. You care about the stakes of them, but this was like without John Steinbeck as a son keeping them warm. Right. This was them in the cold of Stockton, California, a depressed town. Everybody, you know, I mean, he's out there picking with Mexican migrant yeah. laborers, uh, you know, there's some very interesting turns here and some real time that we get to spend with them 
in their in their personal lives, their the the turmoil of their personal lives, and these are pretty hopeless people for the most part. But I agree. I thought, especially Stacy Keach, but but all of the people cast in this perform their roles with such subtlety and poignancy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, uh, Bryn, that you were saying that that um, encountering a professional boxer yourself, and then discovering that he was, you know, really, really brilliant in his youth. You were saying like similar to Ernie. I believe that um, Leonard Gardner had a similar experience because when he, he, when he was very, very young, I believe that he fought, he stepped into the, or he, he, was, he was training or something and a professional boxer, a guy called Johnny Miller, approached him in the gym and said, hey, do you want to spar? Hmm. And uh, at the end of the sparring, um, you know, Johnny Miller was a professional as far as I know. He's a, what's called a main event fighter. I presume that's top of the bill. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And um, but he was coming towards the, he was sort of peaked at this stage in his life. And Gardner got into the, the ring and sparred with him for a bit. And then at the very, very end, Miller delivered the line, Hey, you got a box kid, which is exactly what um Tully says to Ernie at the very end of their first first session. And so I think it's really, really interesting that, you know, Garden was basing the book upon his own experiences. And then you can relate your own real life experiences to what happened in the book and then happens in the movie. Because then that's one of the reasons why I think boxers see how truly accurate this film rings, because they've seen the very, very same thing or they've, they've heard of the very same thing or they've done the very same thing themselves in relation to, to the story. And that's not that common. You know, especially in in boxing pictures. I mean, you, you were talking about, um, you know, uh, we see when movie stars play boxers, you know, Paul Newman playing a boxer, which is hard to believe because his nose is just perfect, you know. Um, and so you see very, very handsome, striking actors playing boxers. And Stacey Keach comes, comes along. You say, this guy has spent years in the ring. <laughs> And it makes this much more authentic because I think maybe that's one of the reasons, another reason why Brando wouldn't have worked because he's simply just too striking, you know, and not believable. I mean, we believe him in on, on the waterfront because we actually don't see him in the ring, you right. know. Um, but you know, I, I think that uh, it was also another thing about re reading this interview that um, uh, Leonard Gardner gave to the Paris Review, where he said, um, you know, when he was a very young man. He went out and worked in the fields, picking fruits and vegetables. And then a lot of boxers he, he met there. And, you know, I think unless you've lived it, you would never come up with that idea. Never come up with this notion about, you know, uh, a boxer having to go and work in the fields. You would think he's doing something else in the city. Do you know, I, do, I just think it, it, it rings so strangely when I first saw it as a young man. And then when I saw it again in the last couple of years, I went, well, this has got to be based on somebody's authentic experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why it works so well is because it is so, it is so grounded. And uh, the characters, as you said, um, they don't go on the traditional trajectory that we see in boxing pictures. You know, yeah. they really struggle to really get anywhere. You know, there's no sense of advancement, but the characters develop. Do you know, there's revelations in their character, in their behavior. Uh, there's one tiny little moment that I just thought was absolutely beautiful is when Tully meets Oma for the first time in the bar. And she immediately she starts listing off her previous lovers. 
I don't consider my second marriage sanctified. I should have stayed true to Frank. Frank? Who's Frank? Frank. That was my first husband. He's full-blooded Cherokee. And it said to me, it, it almost sounded like um, uh, the MC at a boxing match calling out the numbers and the, the, the bouts, the title fights that the next challenger has read, has had, you know, in the blue corner, 19 bouts, 20, you know, 16 knockouts or whatever. And Oma is listing off the relationships like this. It's like, this is her pugilism. Right. And then at the end of the conversation, as they're leaving the bar, she turns her back. She, she doesn't turn her back on him, but she turns to go to the door and he quickly zips up her dress. I just thought that was a beautiful touch. That was just majestic. You know, I don't know really what it says um, accurately about the characters, but, it, you know, it says about Tully that, you know, um, it's, it's a very, very gentle, affectionate, caring thing to do. I don't think had he not done it, you would have noticed that he didn't do it. But the fact that he does it and she doesn't notice it. I thought it was a beautiful, just a, a beautiful little anecdote, you know? Uh, there were a number of touches that were like that for me. There was that quote that Stacy Keach, uh, somebody tells him that I saw you fight once, and the way he looks up and his face finally lifts with some optimism, and he says, did I win? And I think it's Jeff Bridges who replies, no. You ought to go over to Lido Gem and see my manager, Ruben Luna. Tell him I sent you. My name's Billy Tully. Yeah, I saw you fight once. Yeah? Did I win? No. Yeah, I know. That's that's a heartbreaker. I remember that very, very well. Yeah, it's... I don't know what the equivalent would be like for, in my own life or like for a musician or... You know, it's like being asked about an old... Oh, like being asked about an old partner, an old girlfriend. Oh, did she mention me? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and he goes, no, she never mentions you. Oh, geez, that's... You know, it's... Um, but I think moments like that, uh, again, come back to maybe the experience of Gardner because, he, you know, he boxed. But also, I understand John Houston did as well. Yeah. 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 And... Um, and they know people. You can just tell, like, there's this kind of aspect of boxing. If you're not on the way up, almost everybody, it's the kind of flotsam of broken dreams. Right. There's, there's an element of just every gym. Like, I, I thought one of my favorite roles in this and performances was Nicholas Colasanto, who I knew growing up as coach in, on in Cheers. Yeah, but but obviously he's also in Raging Bull has an interesting part just toward the end of his life. Yeah, and the way it is a kind of meat market when you walk in that you could provide this guy some relevance again as somebody operating sort of at the fringes. But there's there's a, a beautifully rendered aspect to this film that I think people don't pay as much attention to within boxing is that like wine. Like, boxers are an expression of place. And this, this while it felt very specific to Stockton, California, in a, in a space and time, it could have been Atlantic City in the 1980s, <laughs> you know, where is Atlantic City on the way to becoming Las Vegas? No, it's not. But it no. thinks it is for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. I don't think the story could necessarily be set in Los Angeles or Philadelphia or New York. 
No. I think, yeah, you're right. The, the cinematic association of those of those cities, you know, with with regard Rocky, or just simply the vibrancy, constant reinvention of New York and Los Angeles being the city of dreams and all this sort of stuff. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, it, but then again, then again, it comes back to the authenticity of it. I mean, who would have thought of setting a story, a boxing story, in Stockton? You right. Know? Um, and what I thought was remarkable, you mentioned um, the connection with Steinbeck, you know, and um, a little bit reminded me then of, obviously, you know, you mentioned of Mice and Men, but obviously at the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. They're, they're almost migrant because they do go out into the fields and they do, they do, work, they do work in the fields. But also, it's you, just to go back to what you're saying about um, Nicholas uh, Colastanto's character, um, Ruben. You know, sadly, he's as almost as delusional as Tully and Ernie. Yeah. And which means that there's no father figure in the story. There's no parental mentor to nurse them through the the early stages to say this is what we need to do. I mean, there was a almost there was a pitiful scene where Ruben goes off for Ernie's second fight, I think, and he buys him a robe. Mm. he decks him out in almost the silks do you know what I mean and then in that fight um, he's barely taken it off and he's knocked out in 23 seconds and you're thinking none of these characters are learning and I think that's one of the reasons why it, it, it wasn't a hit it was critically a hit but um, it, it wasn't a hit for, for audiences and I think it's one of the reasons why it's not so well known today is because it's not an easy watch the lessons uh, are hard for the audience to take um, but um, just, you know, Ruben's character, you would have thought that he would be the embodiment of at least some sort of wisdom, but, <laughs> there, but there's none at all, you know? And, right. and as a consequence of that, you start to wonder what's, what's the, the lesson? Is, the, is there a moral to the story or is there a lesson to it? And I don't necessarily think so. I think it's just about something. And I think um, one of the things that's about loneliness, you know, that, that, that final scene where they're in the, in the cafe together, and um, before that scene, you see Ernie going to get in his car and he sees Tully and he ignores him. He tries to get into the car before Tully could see him. And, you know, that's sad. And then Tully catches up and says, hey, let's go for coffee. And then they're in the, in the cafe, in the cafeteria. And then this very, very old busboy, uh, you know, very, very old, decrepit man pours in the coffee and Tully looks at him and he says, look at him. Do you ever think he was what, young once? You think he was ever young once? No. Maybe he wasn't. Yeah. And then Ernie um, says, well, look, I've got to take off. And then Tully says, stick around a while. Talk. And it just, you can hear the loneliness in, in, in his body. And they sit there, but they don't talk. Do you know what I mean? Thinking, is, is this what the movie's about? Is it about companionship? Um, but I think really for me, Bryn, what it's about, it's about survival. You know, it's like in, enduring a fight and maybe life is not necessarily a fight, but it's an enormous struggle. And it's the, it's, it's the will to survive. I think Gardner actually says, it's, um, digging out a quote here, he says, the, it's the desolate reality of defeat. Mm. You know, and you are alone in the defeat. You know, when you win, you're surrounded by everybody. But it, it, that brings me to a, one of my another one of my favorite moments in the story is when um, I'm trying to think of the actor's name or the, the character's name is uh, Lucino. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, he's he's bought out, not effectively of retirement, but, you know, he's badly injured. He's passing blood when he goes to the bathroom and he's put up as as uh, as um, uh, Tully's opponent. Isn't that correct? Or am I getting? No, he's, he's put up as Ernie's opponent. Ernie's opponent, I think. Thank you. I got it mixed up there for a second. Yeah. And he's put up as Ernie's opponent. And Ernie wins. And then there's a few little people who come around him after victory and he walks out. And then Houston takes the brilliant decision. He waits until um, uh, Lucerna comes out on his own. And he's completely ignored. Nobody notices him. He walks down this corridor and all the lights go out one by one by one. And he's just he's just forgotten, you know? And I thought that was a really, really good directorial decision. He doesn't play music under it. He just lets the, the real sounds of the real scene play through. And, um, but what, what puzzles me is that why make that, why make that decision? Why shoot that scene again, as I'm coming back to this question, if he hadn't presented that scene, the audience wouldn't have noticed that it wasn't there. Mm. But by putting it in, he says so much about all the other characters in the story, you know, um, I just sort of just mo minor, minor moments like that. And I think the movie, Bryn, is made up of minor moments. It's not this, there's none of this big, I could have been a contender or I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse moments. There's outside of the line, you can count on me. You can count on me right down the line. Which is what Tully repeatedly says to Oma at the bar. I can't really remember of, I can't think of a, a really weighted line which catches everybody's attention and said, you know, um, show me the money or you can't handle the truth. There isn't a line in the film that captures the audience's imagination. But at the same time, it's the overall calmness, it's the, it's the, it's the tonal continuity, the tonal consistency of the story the way Houston handles the material that makes it such a perfect um, perfect delivery. I mean, how is the book compared to the to the movie? Not that I'm, I don't mean sort of said, is it better, but in terms of the, de the delivery of the story. Oh, I think, I think they, there's a lot of, it's one of those rare ones where they both have equal value, but just subtle differences. Right. You know, I, you know, the, you kind of, you know, in the private theater of your imagination with the book, unlike the movie, I mean, when the movie starts off with Chris Christopherson singing, help me, help me make it through the night, yeah. you know, yeah. the tonality is set and the bleakness of the, of, of, you know, where they live, that time, you know, you're hearing a lot of noise in a place that's grinding, limping, um, it, it felt to me very much like a cul-de-sac, like yeah. all of these people are kind of broken down and they're like, there's that great line by Cormac McCarthy, nothing wounded goes uphill. Um, none of these people are on their way uphill. Yeah. Wow. That's a really terrific line. That really, and that, that's a beautiful application of that line to the movie. You know, because they, there are they are such wounded characters. And again, this is a, a, another lovely little thing that may not be. I certainly didn't notice it the first time when I saw it as a young man um, was when Tully, the way the movie starts, Tully wakes up, he scrounges around, he gets dressed, he leaves his room, he goes downstairs, he walks out into the street and he goes back in. 
And then he picks up his gin bag. And that says to me that this was not the way he intended his day to start. He reacted to what happened outside in the world. It was almost like the weather affected him or the sunlight or something. This is so going to the gym was not his first thought. You know, he changed his mind. And I thought that was that's a really, really small thing um, that Houston and Gardner probably did in the book. And it's not a big moment. You know, he doesn't go for the close up where Tully would go, you know what? I mean, we'd see the, the change in his change in his humor. or You would have seen him thinking that moment or say, God, I, it's a little bit chilly. It's on a wide shot. And so much of the film is presented on the wide shot. You know, um, and I think that's um, this, that's uh, one of the, the great things about it. But again, I think it comes back to the uniqueness of, um, the, you know, certain. The, sorry, it's the unique the, the textures as you were saying. Um, going out, working the fields, uh, the amount of time in the bar, um, where nothing really seems to advance the characters. They develop the characters. But I was also thinking when I was I was watching it, and because I haven't read the book, you know, I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here by by comparing it to, you know, let's say in the hands of another writer, and uh, the temptation would have been because it's in Stockton, California, is, is is to expand the story, and to give us the history. I mean, you were saying what were you saying about wine, Bryn? It's it's of its of a time and a place. An expression of place. An expression of place. Okay, so now let's let's dig down deep into Stockton. And the temptation would be, for a different writer, um, would be to write about the landscape and give us the history of the landscape and the history of Stockton and the, the surrounding areas and how Stockton, did it have a golden era at some stage and did it decline, what caused the decline. And within, because this is suddenly the tapestry gets bigger, Tully and Ernie are in danger of being lost. So then Gardner would have to build them up as characters. But the brilliant thing is he keeps it so small. He keeps the canvas so small. And so what you're looking at is it's almost like a miniature painting, which demands that you go in and look very, very closely at it. You know, and that's why I just love those tiny little vignettes um, where Tully zips up her dress or Tully decides to go back into his into his room that day um, because other directors and other films would have made a big moment of it. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I just it's those lovely small vignettes which keeps the film at the right scale and which makes the, the characters much more, I think, um, engaging than as we all saw from seeing other boxing pictures where they've really got to big everything up. I mean, I think you, you were telling me a while ago that some of the some of the the physiques that these actors take on when they go to do the boxing pictures they're all juiced up right oh yeah yeah i mean in four months suddenly they become superheroes yeah <laughs> yeah they should be wearing spandex in, in the in the in the ring yeah and that's what i just i just love about the the movie it's it's and you were mentioning chris christopherson i he was a boxer as well yeah, I think he had a back, I mean, and a road scholar, so very interesting guy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's the great thing about it, is that Gardner obviously lived a very varied life. Houston had an extraordinary variety in his life. Um, you know, I, I think his uh, father and his mother divorced very, very early on, and um, so he was moving between his parents, 
and then uh, he tragically hit a pedestrian at some time in the 1930s in Hollywood and knocked them down and they were killed. And so, you know, he, he's experiencing this um, trauma in his life. And then he goes off and he, he goes to Europe for a while and he comes back. So he, Chris Christopherson, who you're saying, is a Rhodes Scholar, goes to England, I presume to Oxford. And I think Chris Christopherson, his parents were in the military or something. So you've got this phenomenal array of life coming to the story where I think the, all the people involved realize you don't have to exaggerate it. You can just play it, play it down and it has the ring of authenticity. You know? yeah. and, I think, and I think a big part of that is just how observant it is because I think you're absolutely right. This, this, as much as a movie can, this feels like a painting. I mean, it's, it's walking through a hall in a museum, right. depicting a place in time, and the moments look small but the more you study them, the more complexity there is to what the moments are that are being depicted because you can tell there's confusion in the moment. There's incomplete information that, that kind of galvanizes them into something artistic and poetic. Um, just for an example, I mean, you have Stacy Keach needing to love somebody. He doesn't love himself, so he finds somebody <laughs> hopelessly on the way down, an alcoholic who is in an interracial relationship. I thought the film handled that with a lot of subtlety for its yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't aged. That, that, that's another aspect of the film that hasn't aged. It's aged very well. Yes, but it's, it, as you say, I mean, it is a film about loss and damage and I mean, I don't even want to, I don't even know if it's redemption, but even just holding out the, the flicker of a candle that there could be any redemption for a lot of these people. Like they're so far gone yeah. in a way. Um, and yet within that, I mean, unlike Steinbeck, where you have the humor of Steinbeck, there's very little humor in this film. No, there isn't. But there are poignant exchanges of people caring about one another who've kind of given up that they're worth being cared for. That is quite moving, I found. Like I found, uh, just as you say, you know, why do you walk back into the gym when that's been your whole identity for a long time? Is You just can't go back there after a certain point when your name is defined as being a loser. Yeah. And at a certain point... You just feel optimistic. Maybe I can turn it all around again, despite my age, despite that I'm now drinking and smoking and losing my hair. You know, I'm moving out of my youth, but maybe there's one more chance I have to kind of be meaningful, to, to be a part of something meaningful, and I can coax my old trainer into supporting me. And, oh, there's a young guy who reminds me of me. It, it, it's amazing to me how this thing takes on situations that in any other writer's or actor's hands could be so clunky and cliche, yeah. and yet uh, he manages to pull almost all of them off, and you know, vis-a-vis -vis Million Dollar Baby, you can see where Clint Eastwood used a lot of the DNA of this film oh, yeah. in the cinematography and the mood with yeah. his film, which was only the second film ever to win uh, best picture. So you mean boxing picture? Yeah, I mean Rocky and Million Dollar Baby are the only two yeah. 
boxing yeah. matches ever to win. But a lot of that win goes to what I think the foundation that Houston and Garner laid out with this story and, and the way this was filmed. Yeah, and I, I think I'm trying to figure out, you know, why do they fight? And strangely, it's it's the way they can survive. It's literally something to do. And I don't mean that because there's nothing else to do. It's because um, it, I, know, I know this is going to sound really, really, <laughs> really, really cliched, but it's, it's the struggle of life and it's it's the will to survive. And yet, strangely, you put yourself in such harm's way of all the things you need to do to survive. Um, you've got to fight and, you know, you're, you're putting yourself in, in harm's way where you could actually be killed. But I think, again, there's a wonderful moment and it's just a very, very fleeting little thing where Tully is very, very drunk and he phones um, Reuben late at night. Listen, where are you? What's the problem? <laughs> it was a problem. What's your problem? Now, just hold on. Where are you? What's wrong? And then Reuben comes to meet him in the bar. And it's you see Tully leaning back on his stool at the bar. And it's almost like what a child does. You know, remember we were in school, we'd always lean back in the chair and you try to lean back so your hands wouldn't be touching the desk and you try to keep in perfect balance. And as kids, what we're doing is just, it's almost like a game. But for me, Tully, he's trying to, it's almost as if he's trying to fall off. He's just waiting to lose his balance. And I think that is, he's, he's chosen to do that there because that's the way, that's something to do for right now. But I just thought it was a beautiful metaphor. For me, it's a visual metaphor for what he's actually doing in his life. He's, he's completely in a danger zone where what he does next in the, in the gym is going to ruin his life. And yet, right. he does yeah, and yet he does it, you know. And again, you, you were mentioning Million Dollar Baby, the way that's a very, very visual, it's a very, very dark film. <clears throat> dark, Fat City is actually very, very dark as well. The interiors are underlit, you know. Um, and the director of photography, Conrad Hall, had just come off, I think, Butch and Sundance, and he won, a, won a, an Academy Award. And the amazing thing is that Houston clearly said, there's no golden rays of sunlight in this movie. And so Conrad Hall just, you know, lit it. Obviously, he was using electronic lights, but it's almost, it, it's only, he's only using lights, practicals from within the scene. It, nothing is adorned in the film. And I think that's keeping in line with one of the lines, in keeping with one of the final lines in the film. And it's the brilliant thing about it is it's delivered almost like a throwaway. And which is, I think, a mark of a very, very brave actor, not to big up the line. But um, uh, Tully, at the, in the cafe at the end, he says, before you get rolling, your life makes a beeline for the drain. Before you can get rolling, your life makes a beeline for the drain. Hmm. You know, and he's talking in reference to the, the old busboy, the very, very elderly gentleman who's decrepit and he pours him the coffee. And, you know, it's almost like he's looking not only at his future when he sees the old man, he's actually talking about his past and giving, trying to give Ernie a lesson as well. And so the, the tiny little thing that he's learned in the story, or the thing that he's learned in the story is a tiny, tiny little thing. It's almost like a pyrrhic victory. I have suffered so much to come upon this realization. And the trick, obviously, is to really care for the characters. Otherwise, you're drifting into misanthropy. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why this movie works is because, like Steinbeck, loves the characters, has great regard for them, great respect for them. Um, and so... You, you watch 
fat city, but you never feel as though it's, um, you know, you, you never feel as though the characters or that the filmmakers didn't like the characters and even the actors didn't like them as well. There's great regard for them. You know? That's very, that's very true. I mean, it reminds me, this is going to sound like a goofy comparison, but I remember in Canada when Trailer Park Boys was showing up on television periodically and I assumed because the the creators of it modeled it on this that it was like a cops show that it was a documentary based in um, rural Nova Scotia that we were just looking at Nova Scotia rednecks okay. and it was just throwing rocks at them like it was just tremendously mean spirited yeah. finding people on their worst day and. At some point, somebody told me, like, no, you're totally off. They they are playing on that. But if you look at the the ethos that's created in that series, part of the reason why that that show has traveled and, and had a lot of success well beyond Canada. I mean, I'm on in Western Canada where I hadn't met anybody from that region of Canada in my life. Right. So, um, but it's translated where it's a huge hit in the U.S. and I think in the U.K. also it's a fairly popular show. Right. Is It's almost like a 1950s show like Leave it to Beaver or the Andy Griffith show in terms of the creators love their characters. Never allow them to hurt each other's feelings without apologizing, without remorse. There's care and there's love in that world. So when you spend time in it, it's more reassuring than the real world outside of it where that doesn't exist where a lot of uh, wrongs are not righted a lot of the vulnerable are kicked while they're down and we kind of celebrate it now as a culture it's it's a kind of gotcha culture in lots of ways right where unlike what, what Chaplin said that it's tragedy when you slip on a, a banana peel if you're up close watching it yeah. um, now it's not tragedy it's it's something to go viral to yeah you know, ha ha. And yeah. I quite like that about Fat City. I don't know that I want to watch it on a weekly basis, but I, I understood when you've seen people that are not people, you know, for, for you, when you, they, they start off as other, when you see the homeless person who confronts you, yeah. the second and third and fourth time they confront you, you n start noticing more things about them and you can't just dismiss them as an other. Yeah. You start thinking about where did they come from? How is there no support system for this person? How would I feel if yeah. my parents were gone when I was born and, and I was put up for adoption and it was abusive? Where yeah. would I be? You just start empathizing. And I agree that it wasn't just John Houston. It wasn't just Gardner. Um, you know, there's not a lot of boxing books that get Joan Didion throwing her weight behind it to say that it's of extraordinary value, <laughs> you know, beyond what it means to the sport of boxing. I, I agree it's it's awkward to say that it, it looks at something existential about the vulnerabilities of a subsection of society, but it, it also expresses vulnerabilities that we all have about who we are, who we'd like to be, um, the people around us, how we care about them, how they care about us, that I found poignant and distinctive and uh, singular. Yeah, I, I think also is the, the great um, thing, another great thing about the movie is that the, the not even the support characters, I'm talking about the minor characters, the character has only one scene or just a few lines within the big scene, within, within the scene. 
everybody almost almost everybody has a has is given the opportunity to, to tell their own story a ah. little story you know and to the point that when tully is out in the fields and you've got um two two black men tilling the soil and one of them says uh he starts to reveal why he's here and he blames the wine uh, right. and you know it's it's this, this, the sad thing is, but perfectly understandable, is that everybody blames someone else. <laughs> right. But, but you know, it's it's. It, I mean, I didn't mean to make you laugh there, but the great thing is about the movie doesn't make it a joke. It's that they they the the, the, the characters don't um, seem to own their failures. Okay, and I think the reason why they don't see, um, own their failures is because that's the only way they can survive their failures, is by. Yeah avoiding the responsibility it's just too damned hard to look at yourself in the mirror every day and say it's my fault you can only do that in a bigger movie when as to, to um to go back to cormac mccarthy again you know when you're when you're not injured you can go up the hill and that's where you can afford to look in the mirror and say yeah i'm learning from this but this is not the trajectory of the film and and um, the thing is that the truth of the bad about their failures is that just like victory, their failures have many causes. Mm. You know, victory isn't just down to, let's just pretend that Ernie wins the bout and Ernie goes on to be a champion. Ernie, Ernie is not the only person responsible for that. He's not the only cause for that victory. There's tons of things around him that, that sort of uh, construct that victory. And so just as um, victory has, you know, success has many fathers, so too does defeat. Everybody denies it. Everybody sort of distances himself from it. But that's what I, I one of the things that I really liked about the film is that it, it, took the, it takes the time to give, not as a set support characters, but just bit parts, the moment for them to tell their little story. And I think that's, you only notice that, as you said, when you're looking at a, in a gallery or a museum and you see a small painting, you go up, the closer you look, the more you see, and by seeing more, it draws you in yet further. And you can only do that when it's a small painting. It's actually, it's demanding that you look at it very, very closely because it's such a small picture. You know, if we have a big epic, um, you know, or not even an epic, a, a, a film about moving uphill and going towards victory, Rocky, you know, you don't see the, the small moments in a film like that because it's, it's, it's all about moving on to the next, to the next scene. Yeah, and so many of the scenes in Fat City play very long and very slow. You know. Yeah, they do. They linger. Yeah, and it's it's just it's an astonishing film. And you know, I, I don't want to sound like a cliche. It's the sort of movie that we that they don't make anymore. Yeah. You know. Well, and I I think back to your original point because I think your your observation is really apt. Is I think part of why we feel such sympathy for the characters that are presented to us in this is is they don't feel like adults. These are these are ch wounded children yeah. who happen to be forty and you know dealing with alcoholism. But the way they're dealing with everything, it's like children. They've never had the guidance of a parent, yeah. and they've they've grown up, but they haven't grown up emotionally at all. The emotional IQ of all of these characters is five six years old yeah and yeah. and the magic of the film is that you still care about them you don't blame them for it you're aware they've been victimized mm. even if we don't know exactly what the sources are 
right. their their struggle to heal is something that that I think uh, sort of demands our compassion. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that the movie gets um, not not in demands but succeeds in procuring our, our compassion is that it prevents it presents us with a series of cliches, but it presents them in an unexpected order. Right, it's like listening to a piece of music and you're expecting, you know, the the middle eight coming now, but the movie opens up with the middle eight and then it goes straight into the chorus as opposed to the first verse. In a cliched movie, running in the right order, you'd have seen Tully wake up in the morning and not only would he have sort of scrounged around and gotten dressed, you'd have seen him look at the photograph of his ex-wife in the first scene. And we would know that that's the motivation for him to get into the ring, to, to win her back. But we don't see that photograph until much later when he's in the in the orchard with Ernie, much later into the movie. And you're thinking to yourself, is this the right time for us to tell him or for, for the movie to tell us? And I said, it's exactly the right time for the movie to tell us because it lets us know the backstory after he's told us the front-loaded story. And so, as I said, it's a cliche. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, when you see in, in a war picture, the guy takes out the photograph of his sweetheart and you know he's going to get killed, right? right? But how about turning it a little bit where he's killed in the first scene and then someone is going through his remains and you see a photographs, but you don't know who they are. You don't know whose photographs they are because six guys got killed in the attack. So one of the great things about Gardner's story is that he, he gives us the expectation of... Um, you know, uh, he, sorry, he gives us the expectation of a story that's going to f- follow a, a predictable trajectory, and he doesn't. And it's constantly surprising that way. And because it's surprising, the reason why it's not tr- a truly depressing story is because actually the audience learn. I think, you know, um, movies that give us a very, very dark view of the world um, but don't allow us the space to learn are borderline misanthropic. But the, the audience like. The audience will like a film if they're learning something new about that particular world. And I think we come away with greater insight into not only cliche, the human condition, but specifically these characters and, and, and their world. And so we, we feel rewarded and we will reward the film by, by hanging around. Yeah. Why don't we drop into the categories and see how they might inform this film to some degree? Um, sure. Our Winnie Cooper category is, would this be a better film if we were following it predominantly through a different perspective than Stacey Keach's character? Well, I think, yeah, although it leans a little bit towards Stacey Keach's character, we see enough of Ernie with his relationship with uh, Candy Clark's character um, for it to be, with Faye, to be even balanced, you know, and... um, so if we were to change perspective, you know, I think it would have to be a dramatic change in perspective. And how about looking at it through Ruben's eyes, hmm. where Ruben tells his wife, I've got this kid and he's going to be the champ and we think he's really, really got it. And then he puts Ernie in the ring and Ernie is destroyed. Well, not destroyed, <laughs> but knocked out in 23 seconds. And Ernie, then Ruben's wife said, you did, you did the same thing to our boy. Hmm. And then you go, oh my God, this is this is Greek tragedy. This is Icarus and his father, because his father gave him the wings, and Icarus flew too close to the sun. I can't remember his father's name. Sorry. Yeah. But you know, and because the father's ambition, the young boy is destroyed, 
And it's not so much Ruben's ambition, it's Ruben's delusion. So maybe if you were to completely shift the perspective away from the two characters of Tully and Ernie and shift it onto Ruben, you know, uh, it, it might be, it might be uh, an interesting examination. Another way would be perhaps to look at the story from Oma. And the reason why I'm mentioning Oma is because I'm thinking of the verdict. Do you remember the verdict with Paul Newman? Sure, sure. And that's just, you know, it's a glorious picture in yeah. so many ways. But for me, one of the most fascinating characters was Charlotte Rampling's character. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, she makes the phone call to try to get back with him at the end. And she's now lost the way Paul Newman was lost beforehand. And mm -hmm. so to tell the story from Oma's point of view, she sees Tully as her, has her, her dream. Do you know what I mean? He, he's going to correct her life. And then he fails and all of a sudden she's lost again. You know, so I think a complete shift in perspective as opposed to rebalancing it between Tully and Ernie, I think may, um, I'm not saying, I, I doubt it would improve the story at all. I'm just simply saying, giving us a completely different perspective of uh, what the story could be about. Yeah, no, I think I th I th she seems to be the only choice that would be remotely comparable to, to weighting it towards Ernie's um, but I agree the coach is interesting also. There's something very tragic about him. He's another one. I mean, he's the oldest kid in the film in a sense of that delusion you're talking about. But he was, a, he was an amazing actor because, he, as you said, he was in Raging Bull and he played one of the mob bosses in Raging Bull and he's completely believable with these heavy set glasses. But when yeah. he's Ruben here, he, he is like a child. And I think that's one of the remarkable things but the reason why they cast him as coach in Cheers ever so slightly not fully there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, Ruben is almost as like a child. Um, you know, I, I'm put, placing all his money on 23 when he goes to, to the roulette table. Right. And, you know, it just loses it. Yeah. Well, and, and so most of the category choices that we have, we've kind of touched on as far as the iconic moments, the memorable quotes, I guess I'll, I'll leave this with you to conclude. If this film had not existed, do you think we get Million Dollar Baby? <laughs> uh, that's a really, really tough one, Bryn, and you've left me completely floundering at sea. <laughs> I, um, I think you do. I think you still get Million Dollar Baby for the simple reason that Clint is Clint, and he's able to um, make a movie that suits his temperament with his group of friends, you know, um, be it Unforgiven and Richard Harris and Gene Hackman and Morgan Freeman or A Million Dollar Baby. And I, you know, I say that because I think that the, the screenplay for Unforgiven was written back in the 70s and it fell into, it arrived on Clint's table sometime in the 80s and he decided to wait until he was old enough to play the part. And mm -hmm. so I think that um, although when we look at Million Dollar Baby, we can see that it can draw on the template or some elements in Fat City, I don't think it needed Fat City to have been made in order for Million Dollar Baby to be made. In other words, can you imagine, um, I can't imagine Clint Eastwood having to go into Warner Brothers and saying, hey, look, do you remember that movie Fat City from 72? Because the first thing that the, the, the executives in, in Warner's would have done is they looked at the box office take and said, don't think so. <laughs> you know, right. If you're thinking of making the remake or making a movie like that. Um, 
But I think I think it's just more down to Clint's temperament as a storyteller and where he is in his life at that time that allows him to make Million Dollar Baby. Just like Houston was in that moment, in that in that moment in his own life, where he needed a little bit of a comeback. Um, but it's also interesting, I think, that Houston worked, his best films are all based on books. Mm. You, know, you look at The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, which I think is one of the greatest um, uh, of Hollywood films, and especially from the 1940s. It's a brilliant piece of work, and again, downbeat. You know, um, but I, I, I think I think Million Dollar Baby could be made even even though Fat City, if, if Fat City hadn't been made. But to, between you and me, um, I would regret a, a cinematic universe more without Fat City than if Million Dollar Baby had not been made. I would mm. miss Fat City more than Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, I, it doesn't have the flashiness and it's not. Well, and I think I think it has more honesty about the milieu that it's trying to examine. Is Clint superimposes an inspirational aspect to his story that is not just the exception, but it's the person who walks into the casino and and leaves winning a million dollars on a, a slot machine. Yeah. It's not the five million people that go there every year who s sacrifice their home, <laughs> their kids' tuition. You know, it's it's not the people, the good customers from the perspective of the casino that is who we're looking at in Fat City. Yeah, and can I add to that, Bryn, by saying it's the, you know, it's not the five billion customers, but it's the hundred customers who go there and die at the machine and are wheeled out the back because they don't want to disturb the rest of the customers. Right. That's what Fat City is. <laughs> it sounds such a downer, but if, if any of your listeners uh, haven't seen the movie, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's just a fantastic piece of work. I loved it too. I thought it, I thought it was really poignant. And uh, it's always interesting when these films speak to their time and, and great performances, but... I could put a lot of faces on on those actors, and uh, it it definitely engendered a lot more compassion for some of the people that I've come across around the world in boxing gyms too. I mean, it doesn't matter what country they're in; the stories um, are very similar to that poignant Chris Christopherson theme: trying to make it through the night, make it through another day. That is really the boxer's story for the most part. Yeah, because yesterday is dead and gone, and is it tomorrow is too far away? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It, it means it's, it, the struggle is right now. That's what it, they're focusing on, the struggle right now. I think it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful song, and it's brilliantly chosen. Thanks so much, Stephen. Right, thanks, Brent. All right. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings. It is produced by George Alarcon Swaby, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is brought to you by Ring Magazine. Thanks for listening. Yesterday is dead and gone.